Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. We had just begun our Numbers series last week, and we're going to fast forward to Numbers chapter 14. Where we are in the book of Numbers is where God is preparing his people for entry into the promised land. And recall how he had commissioned spies uh, to go and to scout out the land and bring back a report to Moses. And of course, they found it to be a good land and full of resources yet also entrenched with very determined pagan peoples. And the spies come back, having seen the same facts, and having two different interpretations. There were two God-centered spies in Joshua and Caleb who came back with great confidence that God's people could surely take the people of the land. But then there were the other ten man-centered spies who concluded the enemy was far too strong for Israel to defeat. And so what ensued was a great conflict rising to crisis, ensuing in a great rebellion against God. And Numbers Numbers 14 picks up in the midst of Israel's rebellion, and in response, Moses provides intercession. And what is that stake here was more than merely the witness of God's people in the world, but God's reputation among the nations for his glory and for our good. Please follow as I read Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 19. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Tephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said, To stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you 
a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. This is God's word. Father, tonight we would again ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Most of us care about our reputations, that we're only denying ourselves and trying to fool ourselves to pretend that we don't care. In our social media age, Businesses have to care about preserving their good reputations to maintain their customers and attract new ones. In fact, over the years, services have developed which offer reputation repair. Sometimes doctors and dentists and small business owners have to hire such services to repair a damaged reputation, perhaps from an unhappy client or customer. Now, preserving one's reputation is important as long as it doesn't become obsessive and God's people ought to care about our reputation as it's a reflection upon Christ's church. But there is a reputation that is far more important than our own. And that's God's reputation. In the midst of this crisis in the history of Israel, with a rebellion sparked by the faithless report of the weak need, ten spies. Moses intercedes, pleading with God to spare the people the judgment of his holy wrath. And in this instance, Moses is Christ-like. In his zeal and in his concern and his appeal to God, with something of more greater importance than merely the reputation of Israel or his own, but rather God's reputation among the nations. Moses here compels us to uphold God's reputation through his word, his deeds, and his cross. Upon listening to the exaggerated report of the ten faithless spies about how the land devours 
its inhabitants, and it's filled with giants. The people just go bananas. Verse 1 reports that they wailed and they wept all night. The people continue sulking like a sulky teenager, grumbling against Moses. And with a great sarcasm and self-pity, they claim that it would have been better had they died in Egypt rather than be brought out into this wilderness wasteland to die. The great rabble of Israel impugn God's character, questioning why he had brought them here only for their wives and their children to be taken captive. You know, it's only natural for us to fear threats to our well-being. Jesus instructed us to not fear those who can kill the body. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There is a, a rightful fear where we fear God that puts all of our lesser fears in their proper place. The rebels go on to conclude that they are better off returning to Egypt and so nominate a leader to do so. And so here, Moses and Aaron are confronted with an absolute rebellion where faithless people refuse to believe God at his word. Where they can only see the circumstances around them, they have so quickly forgotten the mighty acts of God who delivered them for the most powerful nation on earth. To people who insist that they would just believe God if they saw a miracle. We merely need to point them to this example. It is not true. All kinds of people saw God's miracles in Moses' day, in Jesus' day, and yet still did not believe. Moses and Aaron fall on their faces. Joshua and Caleb tear their clothes. They are grieved, and they appeal with the people not to enter into rebellion restating that the land that they saw was good, and if God was pleased with them, that he would surely keep his word and bring them safely into the promised land. The people were fearful that they would be consumed by the inhabitants of the land. Yet Joshua and Caleb insist, no, it's the pagans who are fearful, and they are mere bread for us. For their protection has been Removed, their false gods will be helpless to stand or protect them from the one true God Almighty. But the people would not hear it. Rather than repent, they take up stones to stone them to death. Sometimes people don't like to be challenged and will not be swayed away from their heart's greatest fears. One response to this rebellion. There appears an even greater threat than that of enemy nations. The Lord himself appears and inquires to Moses why this people refused to believe him despite all of his signs. And the Lord is prepared to strike down the people to the last man, woman, and child to start over, to build up a new, mightier, and stronger nation through Moses. 
We can imagine that might have been a tempting offer for Moses, who had endured much with the grumbling and the complaining and the unbelief of the Israelite people enduring the riffraff day in and day out, how he would be spared the ongoing heartache and frustration of an ornery and stubborn, willful people. Sometimes we might be tempted to think the church would be better off with those folks who can be difficult, who can be frustrating, who are a strain on our graciousness and our patience. And yet we are reminded that God is a God of wisdom and patience who bears with a weak and difficult stiff-necked people in the display of his grace and his mercy. And it's here that we see Moses at his finest hour as he enters into intercession on behalf of the people. And notice his argument. Moses does not defend the people because their actions are indefensible. He does not make excuses for them. He does not try to diminish their guilt or beg and plead with God to just go easy on them. Now, there is something far more important than the well-being of the people Israel. God's honor was on the line. If God were to completely wipe out Israel, the Egyptians would hear of it and tell the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. The Egyptians who were still recovering from the shock and awe of the mighty God of Israel, raining down ten plagues, wrecking their economy, decimating their population, casting horse and rider and chariots into the bottom of the Red Sea with the greatest military triumph the ancient world had ever known. The Canaanites had a lot to fear as the two spies that entered Jericho would find 40 years later. Moses makes his appeal in verse 17 to the Lord. Please let the power of the Lord be as great as you have promised. God had promised Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan. And yet if God were to kill Israel, which he had every right to do, Moses argues, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in this wilderness. The nations would conclude that God did not keep his promise. That he is a God who does not keep his word. When things get tough and the people get difficult, he goes back on it and destroys them anyway. Moses here holds God to his word. Moses is concerned with God's reputation that the nations might know that there is a God in Israel who keeps his promises. 
How about you? Do you hold God to his word? And you need to know God's word in order to hold him to his word. And do you you trust God at his word? Life is hard. Bad things happen as we travel along the road in these wild lands of a fallen world. There are giants in the land. Cancer, depression, job loss, betrayal. There is scarcity of resources in a world that is never fully satisfied. And temptations abound. The false gods overpromise and underdeliver. But we, as the followers of God, must believe in the God who keeps his promises, who will never leave us nor forsake us, who will provide us our daily bread, that we might not be tempted beyond our ability to endure it. And if we believe that God keeps his word, we must be a people who keep our word. We live in a very non-committal society. People wait to the last minute to identify whether a better option will come along. Psalm 115 commends the man who, in his fear of the Lord, swears to his own hurt and keeps his commitments. Fathers, keep your word. Mothers, keep your word. Husbands and wives and children, keep your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. May we be known in our community as a people of conviction, of integrity, who keep our words, recognizing that it's more than just our own reputation that's at stake. It's God's reputation among the nations. God, our God, is the one who keeps his word. Our God of justice and mercy, whose deeds testify to his righteous character. In the previous crisis of the golden calf incident, God there also threatened to wipe out the people of Israel. And it was there that Moses first stood in the gap and interceded on behalf of his people arguing that the Egyptians would conclude that it was with evil intent that God brought the people out to only kill them on the mountain. And on that occasion, God graciously pardoned the sin of his people, forgave their idolatry, and conceded Moses' request to show him God's glory. And you remember how God set Moses in the cleft of the mountain and passed by, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children of the third and the fourth generation. Moses uses God's own testimony here in this second appeal that he might pardon 
the people on the basis of God's righteous character. You know, part of what Moses is saying here is that the whole world needs to know this God. Yes, Israel deserves to be punished, and they will be punished. God will pardon them and yet hold them accountable, sentencing them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Those knuckleheads who refuse to submit to God's punishment will lead a band into the land of Canaan and suffer a severe beating by the Canaanites because they lack God's protection. If God would wipe out all of Israel in the wilderness, it would deny the nations the opportunity to know the mighty deeds of the Lord, the true God who is just and merciful and gracious. If the nations only found hundreds of thousands of dead Israelites scattered about in the wilderness, the nations would conclude, oh, I guess the God of Israel is just like our gods. He's powerful but capricious, fickle, thin-skinned, vindictive. We thought that this was something new after the Exodus plagues, but I guess we have seen all this before. Yawn, sigh, and go home in misery to serve God's made and man's image. As I read in the call to worship from Psalm 96, the gods of the nations are merely idols who have no fame that is worthy to be declared among the nations. In great contrast, our God made the heavens, and his glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. John Piper has written, The difference between the true God and the gods of the nations is that the true God carries, and the other gods must be carried. The true God serves. The other gods must be served. Our God glorifies his might by showing mercy. The gods of the nations glorify theirs by gathering slaves. In the past 200 years, more people have come to faith in Jesus Christ than the prior 1,800 years total. In the year 1900, one out of every 21 people in the world was a professing Christian. Today, that ratio is one in seven. In 1976, missiologists had identified 17,000 unreached people groups. And through focus and strategy and effort in responding to the call to spread God's reputation among the nations, by 2004, there were 8,000 unreached people groups left. And that number decreases annually. As people leave the comfort of their homes and Western churches to make a name, make the name of Jesus famous among the nations. Our God is knowable. 
the one to whom God, whom Moses spoke face to face. And Moses seeks the pardon of Israel. If the nations might know this God who forgives sin. For the greatest danger to humanity is not climate change, is not terrorism or one world government. It is the holy wrath of God. And the nations need to know how to flee the coming wrath, to find the only place of refuge at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, there are many today that don't like this message. There are many who refuse to embrace Christ as Savior and the notion that he is the only way. And that without him, people suffer an eternity in hell. It's not a popular message. It doesn't go, fall in accordance with religious tolerance and the popular universalism. It's quite offensive for us to hold this position that supposedly excludes others. But the problem with universalism is that it teaches a God that is not just. To deny the reality of hell is to deny God's justice. And if there is no justice with God, there is no consolation for those who suffer at the hands of the wicked. For the judge who lets the criminal go scot-free is unjust. And to neuter God's holy justice is ultimately also to despise and dispense of his loving character. God's people have a reputation to uphold. To deny hell is to deny God's existence. To go along with our culture's sexual ethics and is only to not deny God's right, rightful role as creator and definer of all that is right and good. He calls us to maintain biblical standards of justice and righteousness in a society that has justice dementia. People must be held accountable to standards of character, whether they be in public office, in the workplace, in our schools. Only a society governed by the rule of law can truly exercise compassion and mercy. That's the only way it has any meaning. So we begin with justice and can then offer mercy. And God's people must be the most gracious people on earth. But it does not mean we are mere doormats to be walked on. Whether you and I are called to be people of conviction, to maintain standards of biblical marriage and sexuality and truth, because we have a reputation to uphold, God's reputation. And thirdly, ultimately, God's reputation is magnified in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, some people argue that the God of the Bible has an ego problem. 
Our own confession says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And isn't a God who requires worship and devotion just full of himself? And yet our response to this charge is that people are incurably religious. People all worship something, the creature, the creation, or themselves. And all will worship something, either the infinite God or something far inferior. But secondly, in response to this charge, we need merely point people to Jesus. Moses, in our passage, foreshadows the life and character of Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man. In Numbers 12, it says that Moses was the meekest man on earth. And that was true for a time, until Jesus came, who was far meeker. And yet, Jesus, who was meek, had the audacity to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And yet Jesus was no egomaniac like Hitler, Stalin, and a whole host of 20th century tyrants that came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many who compels all people to come to him. All of us who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give us rest. And rather than have an ego problem, Jesus made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself and took our place upon a Roman cross. He put himself at the lowest place. And so God exalted him to the highest place. Jesus lived, died, and rose again as a testimony to the nations to uphold God's reputation as a just and merciful God. For on the cross, justice and mercy meet. It is there that justice is satisfied. As the Son took the full punishment that you and I deserve for our rebellion and sin, And it's there on the cross that we see mercy, where you and I are granted pardon and spared everlasting torment. It's there we find grace to be granted entrance into eternal life, into the very presence of God. Fathers instruct and discipline their children because they don't want their reputations tainted. The little boy in the playground who loves his father will defend him against a classmate who speaks ill of his father's reputation. Like Moses, Jesus was consumed with the reputation of his God and Father, his reputation among the nations. And he calls you and I as his followers to spread the good news, to a people worshiping false gods, to inform them there is a God in heaven who is good on his word, who guarantees salvation to all who look 
upon the Son in faith. A couple of women in our church left this morning to go to Southeast Asia. Teams will go to Yakima in Colombia later this summer to convince peoples that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is superior to the gods worshipped by their ancestors. In past years, our teams have gone to London to try to persuade Hindus and Sikhs that their gods are not worthy of their worship or devotion. There is a creator who has revealed himself in his word, who truly is worthy of our worship. To convince Muslims that Jesus is more than a prophet, but the King of kings and Lord of lords, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving sins and offering the assurance of our salvation. And there is much need to go far, and there is much need nearby as nations come and languages gather. And even as I look back at the stats from six years ago when I preached this, the thousands of Arabic speakers and Spanish speakers and the many people who teach ESL in our own building on a weekly basis, 70% of the children in this county are unchurched. And that was before the pandemic. I dread to see what that stat is now. There is much need, far and wide. And God calls you and I to pray, to go, to send, to serve. But wherever he calls us, wherever he uses us, may all that we say and do be led by a consuming passion to increase God's reputation among the nations. For his glory, for our good, may Jesus Christ be glorified forever and ever. Let us pray. Father, we do praise you as the great and almighty God, the one worthy of our worship and devotion and service and honor. We do praise you and thank you for the mighty salvation you've given us in in your Son. And may we be a people who, like your Son, who are consumed with your reputation among every one that we meet. May your Spirit dwell and reside in us with great power, with great compassion. And may, indeed, your reputation increase among the nations near and far. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.